Well, over the past 15 years, uh, God has given my family the opportunity to serve alongside some amazing people in some great churches. Um, I think back to our time in Clayton, Indiana from 2012 to 2015, where I served as the family pastor at Clayton Christian Church, and uh, I learned a lot of valuable lessons during my time at Clayton, but there's one lesson that I learned that I think will stick with me forever, and it's a lesson that I hope to pass on to as many people as possible. And so much like our church family here at OCC, uh, Clayton has a large and active group of older members. We'll call them the, the, the wiser members, the more seasoned members. And uh, it's now a church of around 350 people, with about 50% of the church being made up of uh, people over the age of 65. Now, when I was on staff there, I held normal office hours during the week, and my most productive time during the day has always been in the morning. And so I'm curious, anyone else a morning person? You get most of your work done in the morning? Yeah, so we can be friends. And... uh, Our older members, they they would have Bible studies and ministries at the church throughout the week, but a lot of their groups would meet in the morning. It just made sense with their schedule. And what would inevitably happen is that before or after one of their groups met, uh, we'd get a visitor or two in the office. And it was usually someone just coming in to say good morning. Uh, Maybe they were asking for prayer for themselves or someone they knew, um, or just to see how the office staff was going. They were very friendly. But I have to confess something to you, that early on, uh, this would really frustrate me because, again, I'm more productive with work in the morning. And uh, I always tried to be kind and compassionate when someone would drop by, but I found myself getting really frustrated by this. Well, my senior pastor at the time, uh, his name is Gary Black, he's since retired, um, but he recognized this frustration in me and he decided he was going to call me into his office to have a little chat. And he sat me down, and after giving me the opportunity to share some of my frustrations, um, he taught me a very valuable lesson. It's a lesson uh, that I've remembered and tried to apply to life and ministry ever since. Gary taught me the important lesson of learning to be interruptible, being interruptible, and viewing those interruptions as what he called divine interruptions. He shared with me how even when it's not convenient, or when I think I've got something more important going on in my life, God will often use these divine interruptions as opportunities to meet a need, as opportunities to minister to someone, to be a listening ear, to pray with someone, or to just be a friend. I think if we're honest with ourselves, I'd say that few of us truly look forward to being interrupted throughout the day, right? We don't typically like this. Nobody likes it when the phone rings in the middle of a really good movie and you have to pause the movie or ignore the phone call. (laughs) Nobody likes it when you get sick on vacation and your plans have to change, especially when you've looked forward to it for so long. Or what about when someone needs your help on the weekend and you've just been thinking about relaxing and kind of tuning out the world for a few days? Few people experience interruptions like these and they say, man, this is so exciting. This is exactly what the doctor ordered. This is what I needed. Let's face it, if you could choose to be interruptible or not, I think nine times out of ten you'd probably choose not. We, we don't like interruptions too often. 
As believers, many of us, and I've seen this in your lives, uh, many of us have learned over the years uh, to treat interruptions as divine interruptions, even if we don't always get it right. The phone rings in the middle of a good movie and you pause the movie. You answer the phone and you look for a way to meet a need. You get sick on vacation and you remember um, the wise lessons that your pastor has taught you that God never wastes a hurt, that there's purpose in the pain. A friend or a neighbor reaches out over the weekend and you realize that you may be God's answer to that particular need. You may be the answer to the prayer. And so today, I'd like to focus on those times in your life when you have a choice as to how you'll respond to God's divine interruptions. These are the times when God says, I I need someone to serve with compassion. Are you available? Are you interruptible? If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37, as we continue our series What in the world does a Christian do? We're also continuing through Luke's gospel, and you may have noticed that throughout the year. But we're going to look at a familiar story. This is a passage that I've actually preached through uh, during my time here, but we're going to do so with fresh eyes, with fresh ears this morning from a little different perspective. And so I'm going to break this passage down into three different parts. Um, And after each part, I'll share a little bit of context. And then after we've read each of the three parts, Um, I'll share four short truths with you that I think will help you remember how to apply uh, this important lesson to your life. And so we're going to begin with the first section, Luke chapter 10, 25 through 28. And uh, as I read this this passage, I want to encourage you to listen for the motive behind the question that was asked of Jesus. All right, listen for the motive behind the question. And so this is what we read. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. So section one, a little bit of context. Uh, In this passage, Jesus encountered a person called a nomikos. It's a fun word uh, or an expert in the law. Uh, This word nomikos can literally mean lawyer, but it has a little different application than how we think of a lawyer today. Now, these people were respected community leaders, and they were professional interpreters of the Old Testament law. So if you lived in Jesus' time and you wanted to know more about what God expected of you or how you were called to live your life, you would ask the experts. You would ask a namikos. Now, this particular namikos wanted to test Jesus. So he asked a question that was designed to trap him. And that's really the motive behind the question. So I'm curious if you got that when I read it. It was to test Jesus, hoping to expose what he perceived as an inability to handle tough theological questions. Well, Jesus didn't take the bait. All right. Instead, he cast the line back out, uh, turning the question back on the person who asked it. So Jesus asked him this question, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? In other words, you're the expert here. Don't you know the answer? 
Well, this guy was so puffed up with knowledge, I don't think he could resist the temptation to show off his theological sophistication. And he answered Jesus by saying, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You think he answered it correctly? Yeah, he answered it right. He was right on. In fact, I think Jesus would have given him an A plus for how he answered his question. But Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus said, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. You see, this expert in religious law was an expert in knowing but not in doing. It's one thing to know a lot about the Bible. It's one thing to know how to answer all the right questions. It's another thing to apply what you know to everyday life. Jesus said, do these things and you will live. I think his response here should be an important reminder for all of us that it's not enough just to know the right answers. We also have to live it out. In fact, this is what James wrote about um, in his book, James chapter 1, verse 2. He said, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. And so I would argue that based on Scripture, the knowing is the easy part. Knowing all the right answers, that's the easy part. The doing is much harder. In fact, churches all across the country are filled with people who know a lot about the Bible. But it's also important that we apply what we learn. It's important to do what God's Word says. We like to say that the Bible is for learning, absolutely, but it's also for living. The Bible's for learning, but it's also for living. And so keep this in mind when you're participating in a Sunday school class or a growth group or listening to a sermon on Sunday morning. When you read a passage of Scripture, whether it's by yourself or with a group of people, I think there are some simple questions you can ask that will help you get to that application point. First, what does this passage teach us about God? What does it say about God? And then you can move to, what does it say about people? What does it say about man? What does this passage teach me about obedience? Is there something about obedience here? Is God challenging me, calling me to do something with this? And then finally, how am I going to apply this to my life? I think if we stop with just the knowledge part, what does this say? Or, you know, in this text, what did... Uh, what, did, what did Peter say to, to John? And how did Jesus respond? And you know, we just go back and forth and we just debate the Bible. There's no significance in that. There's no benefit to that. We have to move to the application. Don't just listen to God's word. You must also do what it says. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourselves. And so what does it say about God? What does it say about man? What does it say about obedience? And then how am I going to apply this? And if you want a fifth one, who am I going to tell about it? <laughs> who am I going to share this with? When it comes to the Christian walk, I think it's easy to know a lot of the right answers, but putting what we know into practice is what Jesus has in mind. So don't forget the application. Be thinking about that for the sermon today. How am I going to apply these things to my life? So let's continue with the second part of the passage, verses 29 through 33. It says that the man wanted to justify his actions. Another way to say that is he wanted to justify his inaction. And so Jesus asked, and, who, or, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story. It's also called a parable. He said that a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem 
Jerusalem down to Jericho, and uh, he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. So this is a pretty gruesome scene. By chance, a priest came along. So your pastor's walking along the side of the road. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side and passed him by. He didn't take time for the man. Then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Verse 33 said, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. So this teacher of religious law, this Namakos, wanted to defend himself, justify himself, by narrowly defining a single word, and that word is neighbor. Who is my neighbor? See, for this man... The command to love your neighbor meant loving the people who looked like him, the people who had the same beliefs and were easy to get along with. And if a person didn't fit into this category, if they didn't have these qualifications, in his mind, they didn't fit into the neighbor category and the law simply didn't apply. We've already seen how his first motive was to test Jesus. In verses 29 through 33, we're given a second motive, and that was to justify himself. That word justify in this passage, it means he tried to excuse himself. So he's saying, I know what this says, but I'm going to find a loophole here. I'm going to try to excuse myself from doing what it says. He tried to excuse himself from having to follow the command to love his neighbor. He tried to do the same thing that the old comedian W.C. Fields tried to do when he was caught by his peers uh, reading the Bible, he said, I'm just looking for loopholes. You see, Fields wanted to know the bare minimum. He wanted to know how little he could do for how to get through life and make it to heaven. He tried to justify his inaction. And so we're familiar with the parable. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan absolutely is about helping those who are in need, serving others with compassion, But it's also about the excuses we tend to make not to serve others. We make up all kinds of excuses for why we can't serve or help other people. We tell ourselves that we can't help someone because it's too dangerous. Maybe that's, you know, a mission trip opportunity or something. Maybe it's too involved, it's too time-consuming, or we don't have enough money to meet the need. Jesus used several characters in this parable to turn all of these excuses upside down and to illustrate an important truth. And this is that upside-down living of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so first, we're introduced to a group of bandits or robbers. Um, These are not good men. There's also a Jewish man who got robbed. He was beaten so badly, the Bible said he was left half dead. And then we have what I think are the three main characters here. The first character is a priest. And the office of priest in Israel was extremely important. You have to understand that. They represented the people before God. They offered the various sacrifices prescribed in the law. So that was a a very important role. Second, you have this character, the the temple assistant or uh, the Levite, who was also held in very high esteem. And like the priest, this guy should have known what to do when encountering someone who was in need. And then finally, we are introduced to the Samaritan. Now, he's the person that you'd likely be afraid of if you met him on the street. 
You see, these two people, the Jewish man who was beat up and left for dead, who was attacked, and the Samaritan, they were natural enemies. And there's a number of reasons for that, why they would have been natural enemies. One of the reasons was um, ethnical hatred. Ethnical hatred. The, the Jews saw themselves as pure descendants of Abraham, while uh, the Samaritans were a mixed group of people who were produced when Jews from the northern kingdom intermarried with the Assyrians, and it's kind of a messy story. The Jews actually called the Samaritans half-breeds. That's how they referred to them. They were less than to them. These two groups, they absolutely despised one another. The Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. By using a Samaritan, really as the hero here, Jesus pointed out that it doesn't matter what you call yourself or what others call you, how other people see you. What, What truly matters is who you know and who you live for. Lots of people call themselves Christian, but they don't actually live and behave as the Bible teaches us to live and behave. There's no outward fruit of the inward transformation that should be taking place. Again, we tend to make all sorts of excuses for our inaction when it comes to serving others and living for God. The leader of religious law, the Namakos, He wanted to justify his inaction by asking the question, who is my neighbor anyway? You know, who who is my neighbor? He wanted to do the bare minimum. And and friends, I'm afraid that many Christians try to do the same thing today. They try to just skirt by without really using the gifts that God's given them, without being part of a church body, without being the hands and feet that Jesus has called us to be. And so that brings us to the third and final section here, verses 33 through 37. Remember, we ended the last section with the Samaritan having compassion on this guy, but listen to what compassion leads to. It's really an action. It says, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine. He bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, and I love this, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. In other words, regardless of how much the bill is, I'll cover it. Start me a tab. (laughs) And Jesus said, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then again, we see this this love in action, this compassion in action. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Do the same. So Jesus used this parable to show us the example of a person who decided to look past excuses to stop and, and serve. The Good Samaritan chose to respond positively to this divine interruption. He was interruptible even when it wasn't convenient or comfortable. And so what I want to do based on this passage is share just four short uh, important truths with you that I think will help you begin to respond to those divine interruptions in the way that God's called us to. And so number one, if you're taking notes, is that this interruption took a risk. It took a risk. We see this uh, in verse 30. It says, Jesus replied with a story 
A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. You see the risk here? You see the danger here? And so I'm reminded of a a ski town in the southwest part of Colorado called Telluride. How many of you have been there? Yeah, Telluride. Today, it's a popular destination, especially for the rich and famous, but it wasn't always that way. Uh, Back in the Wild West days, the road to Telluride was so full of robbers that this town got its name from the contraction of To Hell You Ride. That's where the name comes from. It was a pretty dangerous place. Well, how does that relate to our parable? We see this 17-mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho had the same kind of reputation and a similar kind of infamous name. And because of the number of robbers along the road, it was known as the Way of Blood. So when the Samaritans stopped to help, he knew he was on dangerous ground. He knew he was on a dangerous road. But he didn't allow the risk to be a justification not to act. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, The first question the priest and the Levite asked was, If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question and asked, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Some wise words from a wise man. As you look for opportunities to serve others this next week, don't allow the risk to hold you back. Our risk is a little different maybe where we live in this part of the world, but I think there's often the risk of, well, what if I don't say the right words? Right? What if... What if It's the risk of being uncomfortable around people that you're not uncomfortable being around. What about the risk of rejection? I think for a lot of Christians, that's why we don't share our faith with other people. We're afraid of being rejected. Don't allow the risks to hold you back. This interruption took a risk, and that's an important lesson for us. Number two, if you're taking notes, this interruption took personal involvement. He had to get his hands dirty. He had to be present. We see this in verses 33 uh, through the first part of 34. It says, Then a despised Samaritan came along. So this isn't someone that was well-loved or well-liked. You've got to keep that in mind. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. He, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine, and he bandaged them. He touched the person. When the Samaritan saw the wounded man, he didn't go over to the other side of the road and just keep walking like the other two men had done. Instead, he got involved. He sued the man's wounds. He bandaged him up. And in doing so, we're reminded that God's divine interruptions often require personal involvement. It reminds me that it's impossible to serve God from the sidelines. I think that's a... Maybe a symptom of the American church in some ways. We think that being a Christian and and church is just coming to a building on Sundays a lot of times. But friends, when we read the Gospels and we read the New Testament and we see the life that Jesus has called us to, there's no possible way that anyone can come away with the conclusion that we can serve God effectively while sitting on the sidelines. We can't do that. It's impossible to serve God from the sidelines. This interruption took personal involvement. And so number three, if you're taking notes, 
This interruption uh, also took time. This interruption took time. The latter part of verse 34, um, it, it gets a little more messy here. And then he put the man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn where he took care of him. So the Samaritan, he didn't use a busy schedule as an excuse not to help. He took the time to stop and interrupted his own plans by putting this guy on his own donkey. There wasn't an ambulance around. There wasn't an emergency room nearby. Instead, they had to travel likely a long ways to this inn where he could be cared for. And he cared for the man himself. And sometimes what we do is, I think we use our busy schedules as an excuse to justify our inaction. I think this is the most common excuse that we like to use. And personally, this is where I struggle the most. I, I tend to guard my time even at the expense of others. And one thing that I'm learning is that we always make time for the things that are most important to us. You think about this last week and how you spent your time, the things that you did. We always make time for the things that are most important to us. If worshiping with your church family on Sunday is important to you, you'll find a way to worship with your church family. And I don't say that to make anyone feel bad about themselves. It's just the truth. We make time for the things that are most important to us. If, if using your gifts to serve in a ministry is important to you, you will find a way to serve. If being part of a Sunday school class or a growth group where you can study the Bible with other believers and ask questions and grow in your faith and challenge one another and hold one another accountable in those ways, if that is important to you, you'll find a way to do it. We always make time for the things that are most important to us. I was, t I was telling my wife about this story. She's heard it many times, read it many times. But I think one of the things that stood out to her was like, just how this guy got involved. He wasn't lazy. <laughs> you know, laziness has taken a root in our culture and in our lives. We have a lot of lazy Christians. You know, maybe some Sunday we need to take the chairs out of here and just let us stand the whole time. <laughs> I mean, seriously, mix it up a little bit. I have to stand. Why can't you stand with me? No. <laughs> And don't hear me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're lazy. But be honest with yourself. Have you been lazy in your faith? Because the things that matter most to us are the things that we make time for. We give our attention to the things that matter most. And so this interruption, it took time. It took time. God's divine interruptions often take Time. Number four, if you're taking notes, this interruption took money. It took money. Verse 35, we see it very clearly. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. And so if you read in between the lines, it seems like the Samaritan regularly visited this road and possibly had stayed at this inn before. I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. He had a relationship with this guy. He gave the innkeeper some money. He asked him to take care of the man. And if the bill ended up being higher than what he originally gave, 
He offered to pay the difference the next time that he came around. The Samaritan didn't use money or a lack of money as an excuse not to serve. And we don't know what his financial situation was like. Right? We don't. But I think the principal truth here, the lesson, it it really doesn't matter. Margaret Thatcher, who was a Christian woman, uh, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, she once said that no one would have remembered the Good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions. He had money as well. What's the point? It often takes resources to help others who are in need. I, I believe the church has unlimited resources. I do, because if the church is the bride of Jesus... And God is our provision. I think the church has unlimited resources. And sometimes we allow our perception of a lack of resources to maybe hinder what we engage in or don't engage in. I I have seen in my five years here that any time this church steps up and sacrificially gives towards some kind of mission, some kind of cause that will further the kingdom, God blesses that. He blesses it. Time after time, I feel like we have these conversations with our church board. It's like, can, can we give this? I'll give you one example is um, paying, you know, for every kid to go to camp the past two years, to go to Christian Harbor. In the first year, that seemed like kind of a wild idea. We didn't know how many kids were going to come. And uh, I, I just remember a couple of people speaking up in those meetings and saying, why wouldn't we do this? You know, why wouldn't we? And, and we did, and God blessed that, and we really didn't see it affect the church uh, general fund, our budget, really at all. Kids brought friends. There was some, uh, you know, amazing weeks that were had and, and life-changing experience. And this past year, I believe we took 13 or 14 kids, and we decided we were going to do the same thing. And you as a church decided to step up and to be generous, and we paid for every kid 100% to go to camp. <laughs> and that's amazing. And that's just one story. And, and this year, you know, we look at the giving in the church. And we don't, we don't talk about these kinds of things often. And we really don't. But we step back and look at it, and God is blessing his church. You know, we're able to step out and do some things that we haven't been able to do in the past. And I think God's going to continue to put opportunities before us um, to uh, come alongside our, our daycare ministry and to come alongside our missions, whether they're local or global Um, our Love Local partners. There's going to be so many opportunities for us to give um, sacrificially, to be generous with the things that God has entrusted us to be stewards of. No one would have remembered this guy if he'd only had good intentions. He had money as well. And so I would argue when we look at this parable as a whole, that it often takes our time, it takes our talent and our treasure to serve others in the way that God has called us to serve. God doesn't need these things to get the job done. If you don't do it, he'll use someone else. He doesn't need these things. But he knows something about every single one of us, and that is this, that these are the kinds of things that typically control our hearts, that typically control our lives, our time, our talent, and our treasure. And what's the point? The point is that God wants all of you, not just the leftovers. He wants the first fruits, not just the scraps. And oh, is he worthy of our first fruits. Oh, is he worthy of our best, amen? The good Samaritan was interruptible. It it took a risk. It wasn't safe. 
It took personal involvement. He got his hands dirty caring for this person who he was natural enemies with. It took time. You know, his own plans were changed so that he could meet a need. And it took money. He was willing to serve regardless of the cost. And so my question for you today is this. That when God puts an opportunity in front of you, when he knocks on the door of your heart and he asks, are you interruptible, what are you going to say? Yes, Lord. I want to challenge you to respond positively to God's divine interruptions. Don't be like 2012 Craig where I'm sitting in my office and I was bugged and, and, and it was a burden. <laughs> Thankfully, I had a pastor that sat me down and taught me a few things. And I'm still growing in those. Thankful for God's mercy and his grace like we sing about. Say yes to the opportunities that God puts before you to serve him by serving others. And follow Jesus' command in Luke 10, verse 37. Go and do the same.